Rhodesia, you have an enormous fund of goodwill between the average white man and the average black man. You can walk around this country anywhere you like and you will not find animosity and hate flowing from the eyes of one to the other. There's tremendous arena of goodwill. This is uh, the barrier that stops us from knowing each other. Because I don't know much about uh, the white uh, congregation up there, and they don't know much about me either. And uh, I wonder how a country can work together when uh, the people involved do not know each other. Ladies and gentlemen, you just don't have any time left. Whatever chance presents itself in the next two weeks, seize it, use it. It is your last chance. Long live Rhodesia, death to our enemies wherever they are and whoever they are. Long live Rhodesia and death to her enemies, whoever they are. The voice of intransigent white Rhodesia, still proclaiming its defiance to the world at large. But Rhodesia is dying. The imperceptible slide into the pages of history has already begun, and soon it will be little more than a mere footnote. But the political life cycle goes on, and through Rhodesia's death is being born the new state of Zimbabwe. Being in the country during that memorable week when Ian Smith finally gave up his 11-year-old UDI experiment gave us a unique opportunity to capture the feelings and emotions of the people of Rhodesia, black people and white people. We were there during the week when the final battle for Rhodesia Zimbabwe began in earnest. The political issues are clear-cut, but what's so much more complex and what we hope to try to bring home to you is the backdrop against which this final battle is now taking place. The great tragedy of Rhodesia is undoubtedly the misunderstanding and mistrust between black and white and the lost opportunities for building bridges between the two races. There are certain places where we can mix with the whites and certain places where we cannot. Um, There are certain areas uh, in in towns, hotels, where we are not allowed to take a drink, for an example. such places, for an example, we have uh, Cecil Hotel or Brown's Hotel or Royal Hotel. You know, we are not allowed to take any beer, say, on Sunday today. No African is allowed to take anything there on Sunday. And on Saturdays, uh, you can get a beer there up to say, 12 or 1 o'clock, and it's closed for the blacks. Only the whites can remain there. And... Uh, there are rooms where we are allowed there in this hotel and rooms where we are not allowed. I cannot take a bed in this hotel. I can remain at the hotel until 7 o'clock, and then I'm told to go away. This is uh, the barrier that stops us from knowing each other, because I don't know much about uh, the white uh, congregation up there, and they don't know much about me either. And uh, I wonder how a country can work together when uh, the people involved do not know each other. I, I, I think uh, these are some of the ways when we can know each other. Uh, staying together, living together, and uh, you know, having sport together, discussions together, having, uh, say, to go to the films together, same theatres and every We share the knowledge. We can show them how we can play the drum, and they can show us how they can play the piano. We, we don't mind, as long as we are together and share the knowledge, you know. I have been living in Rhodesia just for three years, 
and I have never seen any starving African black babies that we see in other parts of Africa, and I hope that we never will. But my policy, my philosophy living here um, was that I would always treat my African servant the way I would treat any other person that I should meet. And um, I know my servant, uh, Benjamin, he's been working for my husband for 12 years, and he is really one of the family, and he has two wives and ten children. And I have all their problems. And um, a very, very happy atmosphere. And I, fi- I think it might be hard for a lot of people in Ireland to appreciate that, but that is true. And anybody that has been to Rhodesia can sense the fantastic atmosphere between the average African and the average European. This is uh, the barrier that stops us from knowing each other. We've helped more than any other country in Africa, more than even in South Africa. There's no apartheid here. There's a, it's a multiracial country. It's, it's, it's a natural division, I think, between uh, poor people and, and people who are not perhaps well-off, but who, who've got something better. And uh, races don't mix. We're very, very anti-communist there. There is no communist party here. It's, it's outlawed. But the Rhodesian Irish feel that uh, the big bogeyman is the, is the communist. This is uh, the barrier that stops us from knowing each other. It's been beautiful. It's been beautiful. I worked in England and I worked in South Africa and then I came up to Rhodesia. I've been here... 19, I came to South Africa '46. So I was in the London docks during the war, and I uh, got married in London, and I had my family in London, and I wanted to immigrate, and I hit on South Africa. I had two years in South Africa, then I came up here, and I found it beautiful. This is uh, the barrier that stops us from knowing each other. There, there, there's a great spirit in the people. We will not go quietly. This is uh, the barrier. That stops us from knowing each other. People have asked me, are you going back home? Aren't you afraid that you'll be arrested? I was arrested before I was born. (laughs) When my mother gave birth to me, she was in bondage and I was born in it. So when how do how do I get rearrested when I was arrested when I was born? I was a prisoner ever since I became a person and I remain one until we're free. The unmistakable voice of Joshua Nkomo the grandfather of black African politics in Rhodesia, a truly gigantic man weighing at least 20 stone, no longer a prisoner but very much a political heavyweight, involved in a desperate bid to bring together the warring guerrilla factions both inside and outside the country. For almost 10 years now, these guerrillas have been harassing Ian Smith's army, hitting isolated farmhouses and government installations. The frontline targets are the biggest states along the border, and many of the homesteads in the area now have all the appearances of miniature fortresses, with high wire fences, sandbags, searchlights and guard dogs. These estates are in what are known as the operational areas, Repulse, Thrasher and Hurricane, three large regions along the Mozambique border which have been placed under martial law. Journalists are only allowed into these operational areas on very rare occasions and always under heavy army escort. But 24 hours after one particular homestead in the Mount Darwin area, 120 miles north of Salisbury, had been hit, 
the Army and Air Force flew in a party of foreign correspondents to meet the owners, Wally and Erica Barton. The idea was to give the Rhodesian Army side of the story to the world press. So we were airlifted into the area in a World War II vintage Dakota, the one, incidentally, Ian Smith uses himself for internal travel in Rhodesia. And then we were driven over 20 miles of rutted, landmine-scarred roads to hear an army briefing on how the previous night's rocket attack had been carried out. They climbed the fence, forced the farm employees to feed them. Thereafter, after addressing the employees, they came to the farm homestead itself. They set up firing positions, spreading themselves out behind the trees here. They then opened up on this section, the northern section of the homestead, with small arms and rocket fire. This attack lasted approximately 10 minutes thereafter they absconded. Some of the terrorists, in order to avoid um, the security fence, actually climbed trees from where they fired the weapons. The fire was fairly, fairly accurate. One rocket actually striking the building itself and a great deal of the small arms fire striking windows, roofing and the wall. No injuries was, were sustained, however, there was slight damage to the wall of one bedroom. In fact, I was on the point of putting the light, lights out when um, I heard the uh, crack of a mortar <coughs> uh, going off. And a few seconds later, they started up um, with pretty vigorous small arms fire, and this was followed by um, three rockets. Um, well, the damage, fortunately, wasn't too extensive. They knocked a hole in one of the bedrooms. One of the rockets went right through a nine-inch wall. Um, and there's a few holes in the roof and quite a lot of windows broken. Uh, slight damage to tractors. Most of them, I keep the tractors near the house to protect them. Most of them were punctured, but no um, serious damage. Well, I think if one's husband accepts conditions like this, you naturally do yourself. That's about all there is to it. We've got, I've got no alternative. I, I wouldn't, of course, think of... of the, I, I don't want to leave. We've built this farm up for, for 20, what, 20 years, and uh, we've enjoyed living here. We understand that there's some leaflets around the farm. No, these are, these are notes left by the tourists, handwritten... Um, Notes which you're perfectly limited to have a look at. This one here, which as you can see is written out in the form of a pamphlet. Handwritten. Handwritten, yeah. The translation reads, forward with ZANU, forward with Chimarenga, forward with the Central Committee of ZANU, forward with the DARE of Chimarenga, forward with the Chimarenga High Command, forward with the Chimarenga General Staff, forward with the Mass of Zimbabwe, forward with the United People of Zimbabwe and Mozambique, forward with the United ZANU and Frelimo. Forward with Comrade Samora Michelle. Forward with Comrade President Julius Nyerere. Down with the American imperialism. Down with the bigger presses of America and their dogs, which work for them. Down with the sellout. Down with Dr. Kissinger, Kayunda and Forster. Down with Joshua Nkomo. Down with the Reverend Ndabaningi Sitoli. Down with James Chikarema.
But how do these incidents look from the other side of the rifle sites? Bands of guerrillas leave their camps in Mozambique and travel by night through tribal trust lands to attack white settlers. Why do they do it? How do they pick their targets? And what motivates men to risk their lives shooting people of another colour? This man is a divisional commander with the guerrilla forces. We have been trying to fight the oppression, which, is, which means police and other things. But now we found that the backbone of them, they are also farmers who are armed. So now our fighting is to anyone who is a white, whether a farmer or a civilian, because they are, they, it gives no difference. They are all the same these days. We don't kill them for the sake of killing, but we are trying to defend ourselves from them. The, these farmers have been given sophisticated arms by Smith to fight for themselves. So if you try to go there, if you don't fight them, then they'll fight you. It should be known that Smith did not elect himself. It's these people who elected him, so those who voted for him, they are also in the same group. That's why we are fighting those who voted for him. They are the most reactionary people in Zimbabwe, except businessmen and some artisans, they know the African problem. But the farmers and a certain bishop of the Anglican Church, these are the most reactionary people. What we are trying to do is not to frightening. They should quit or they should come to our side to fight the oppressor. We don't say that they should support us to kill their own people. What we want them is either they leave, then they come after independence, because Smith will not be there. I can say every day we have to wipe many, but we don't usually announce, we let the enemy announce himself what he's suffering from. They are running, they are running to hundreds. And also they are running to thousands who are running away from that area. We are not fighting for you uh, uh, against the children and others, but in such a case, you don't know whether there is a woman and children inside, because even the women these days are also armed. But at the same time, we don't like to fight women, but at the same time, we are going to fight them if they are armed. We have seen a lot of women, especially in the Motoko area, in the northeast, and that is where we started operating in December 72, and some of the women were so ruthless, and in that area, we managed to do a wonderful job. Do you know where this particular group has been operating from? Is it across the border? Well, they've come in from Mozambique. Oh, yes. Again, it's in the form of a pamphlet, as you see. Forward with ZANU, forward with Chimarenga, forward with the Central Committee, forward with the Massive Zimbabwe, down with the Reverend Ndabaningi Satoli, down with Joshua Nkomo, down with Abel Tendakai Muzarewa, down with James Dambadza Chikarema, down with the Jew Kissinger, down with the puppet of Kissinger Smith. The whites will be finished. We shall put you over the Limpopo with your uncle John Forster. The time for you to die is ripe. Beware, the war is here. Open the door of the war. Of, open the door of the war of Zanu is coming. The whites, Chirao, Mangwendi, Indoweni, and Charambira are finished. You are near to dress the anthill. Even you who are holding the gun better know what to do. The time is finished. Forward with the Magamba of Zanu. Forward with the Magamba of Zanu are in English forward with the warriors of ZANU. The message in both these pamphlets is certainly stark and to the point, but to somebody not familiar with the internal politics of Zimbabwe's liberation movements, the litany of names and organisations may be just a little bit confusing, but it is nevertheless a clear pointer to the many internal divisions which exist. Divisions between both wings of the ANC, the African National Council of Zimbabwe, ZAPU, Joshua Nkomo's political base, ZANU, a militant political organisation once led by the Reverend Labaningi Sitole, then taken over by Robert Mugabe, and now being reclaimed again by the Reverend Sitole. 
And of course, there's also Bishop Abel Tindakai Mazarewa, leader of one wing of the ANC. Now, the position inside the country is that uh, there's no doubt, you know, that uh, Bishop Mazarewa enjoys almost total support, uh, despite any claims that, uh, you know, people, you know, might make. But uh, they, you know, he enjoys a lot of uh, support inside the country. And the fighters who go in to fight, and those who come out to, you know, train as fighters, come under the name of the ANC. And uh, when they go get, get back into the country, they fight under the name of the ANC and they're supported by the ANC. But we've had problems. You know, we've got uh, some splinter groups, you know, belonging to former ZANU, for an example, uh, that claim, you know, they're uh, leading the fight. But then, then uh, you have uh, people like uh, Mugabe, uh, who claims to be in contact with the fighters, but in fact he is at uh, Kilimani, and uh, he too is uh, rejected by this splinter group. Oh, you're talking of people, dead people. <laughs> you surprised me. Who? Will, will they, or because they are bishops and, and reverends, they might resurrect, I don't know. <laughs> but uh, as far as I know, that was ended in Dar es that was the end. The people we, talk, we talked about were former Zanu people. Possibly you can salvage something out of them. Those people don't exist. Don't talk to me about little splinters. Splinters will always be there. But we're talking of viable, well-controlled, disciplined organization, ANC Zimbabwe, that I lead. It is there and intact. No matter what other people wish, we are there. At home, outside. It's no question of internal and external. We are both inside and outside, in full control. That is the position. It is rather curious that uh, a multi-party nation like the United States of America can tell the people of Zimbabwe to have a one-party system even before majority rule. Uh, and, yet, and yet only in 1961 and 62, the West used to say, if Rhodesia were given majority rule, Joshua Nkomo would emerge as a dictator because there was no effective opposition against him in the country. Today we are told that, hey, oh no, the people of Zimbabwe are too divided for them to achieve majority rule. This uh, is a very big exercise in contradiction. And it was into the middle of this contradiction and confusion, real or imagined, that the United States Secretary of State, Dr Henry Kissinger, dropped out of the blue early in September. Two giant U.S. Air Force transporters brought himself and his entourage to southern Africa on a mission to resolve the Rhodesian question once and for all. For weeks on end, the diplomatic shuttle went on, at first with little hope of success, but then events moved at a speed which astonished the world. In Dar es Salaam, the president of Tanzania, Dr. Julius Nerere, at his first press conference expressed his initial reservations and the initial reservations of many black African leaders. We are saying that uh, it is not possible that Dr. Kissinger is welcome both in Dar es Salaam and in Pretoria for the same reasons. This is not possible. We welcome Dr. Kissinger because he has said clearly that uh, the United States is willing to accept majority rule and uh, they will uh, and these efforts 
are for the purpose of seeing whether it is possible to achieve majority rule in Southern Africa peacefully. Well, fine, this is good. We are saying also that uh, the South Africans see United Nations, United States efforts as a realization of the strategic importance of Southern Africa and how important it is that Southern Africa should be saved from communism. And of course the United States is slightly concerned about, about communism. So it's just possible that whereas we look, we welcome Dr. Kissinger for majority rule, Pretoria welcomes Dr. Kissinger as an ally against communism. But their definition of communism is anybody who is fighting for freedom. So we are saying, because there is this possibility of ambiguity, it would be a very good thing if the United States could say, we don't regard everybody who is fighting for the freedom of his country, or who has been forced to take up arms to fight for the freedom of his country, is a communist. It's clear that a conflict that has gone on for so many years and has such a long history has created profound distrust. And uh, so many efforts have, been, have, have failed that the parties are becoming more and more committed to the process of uh, struggle rather than to the process of negotiation. I think this is the basic underlying obstacle, the reluctance of anybody to admit that negotiations are possible before they know that negotiations will succeed. And of course, they'll never find out whether negotiations will succeed until they first admit that they're possible. This is the underlying difficulty. The checkered history of previous talks to resolve the Rhodesian question didn't exactly instill confidence among those who hoped to see Smith make major concessions this time round. But as the Kissinger talks progressed, it became evident from the tone of daily newspaper reports and from news broadcasts on Radio Rhodesia that something entirely new was taking place behind the scenes. The once unshakably in Smith went to Pretoria, cap in hand, to meet Dr Kissinger. Ostensibly, Smith went there to see New Zealand play South Africa in a rugby international. But it soon became apparent that his real interest was in trying to kick for touch once again, as he had done so often in the past, during talks in the Tiger and Fearless, and again at Victoria Falls. But this time, his negotiating partners weren't playing ball. And on the night of September 24th, the white people of Rhodesia were shocked to hear Ian Smith go on radio and television to make his historic speech of capitulation, finally bowing to majority rule. I believe that it is incumbent on all of us, white and black alike, to act with dignity and restraint in the testing time which lies before us, and to create the right atmosphere to enable those charged with drawing up the new constitution to proceed expeditiously with their important task. Clearly, this agreement doesn't give us the answer which we would have liked. However, it does present us with an opportunity which we have never had before, an offer to Rhodesians to work out amongst themselves 
without interference from outside our future constitution. The Council of State has been charged to do this within two years, which should be more than ample time. As I have already indicated, the Council of State will be composed of equal members of white and black Rhodesians. They will be chosen by Rhodesians. I hope they will be the best, the most responsible we can find. It will only be at the conclusion of this exercise that we will know whether this whole operation has succeeded or failed. I hope all Rhodesians will join with me in dedicating themselves to ensure that there can only be one answer, success. Meanwhile, I believe it is important that we maintain our morale and our confidence. It would be unworthy of us, after all we have been through, after all the sacrifices which have been made, to allow ourselves to fall into any premature despondency. There is no doubt in my mind that the great fighting spirit of Rhodesians over the last decade has earned tremendous respect from the rest of the world. And had it not been for this, the proposals which are now before us would not have been so favourable. For myself, I hope to share the privilege of continuing to play a part in helping to guide the destiny of Rhodesia. I remain dedicated to the ideal of doing all I can to ensure that Rhodesia remains a country in which all of us, of whatever race or colour, can live and work and prosper together in peace, harmony and stability. I have been tremendously gratified and encouraged by the messages of support which so many Rhodesians have sent me in the last week. I am confident that the spirit of determination of Rhodesians remain undaunted and that we shall go forward together towards our goal. Let me end by quoting a few words spoken by Winston Churchill during the last World War. Now is not the end. It is not even the beginning of the end, but it is perhaps the end of the beginning. Good night, and may God be with you all during these trying times. There, there, there's a great spirit in the people. We will not go quietly. We will not go quietly. I think there will be absolute chaos. I really do, with the best intentions of the world, with the, um, some of the black leaders, with their good intentions, I think it will be very difficult. Now, look, we don't want to be another Cyprus. We don't want to enter agreements after we are in, which will be a problem to us after independence. If they want to give the whites, as they pass the door, uh, cash, they can do so. But they must not expect us to sign any, any such agreements of buying, because that would be selling our countries to some other person. Uh, Zimbabwe is not for sale. There, there, there's a great spirit in the people. We will not go quietly. We will not go quietly. With um, most other... Um non-African inhabitants of, of Rhodesia, there is a, an, a, a much larger 
question mark of uncertainty looming over our heads. And uh, obviously in such circumstances we would welcome uh, the knowledge that um, our, the, our country of origin uh, was thinking of us at this time. There, there, there's a great spirit in the people. We will not go quietly. We will not go quietly. It was a shock. It was a shock to most Rhodesians, I would say. The Irish always felt that this was their home, and that, like the Irish and the Americans, it would be, always be their home. But uh, in two years' time, it may not be the end of everything. We're hoping that Ian Smith and moderate African leaders would make it um, safe for us to stay on here. There, there, there's a great spirit in the people. We will not go quietly. We will not go quietly. I would like a, a government which is fair, which is just, which looks at a person as he is and not as he is not. I like somebody who is fair, not because you are black and not because you are white, but we have to be fair. People should be fairly treated. A government that is ready to, to, to bring up the nation, build it up into something that someone can be proud of. Ladies and gentlemen, you just don't have any time left. Whatever chance presents itself in the next two weeks, seize it, use it. It is your last chance. Long live Rhodesia, death to our enemies wherever they are and whoever they are. of Zimbabwe, like any other people, have reasserted themselves as human beings, and they've got to recognize that and come to terms with it, as it seems they're doing. That's all we ask of them. We don't want them to do anything for us. We want them to recognize our, 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 our self-assertion that has, has been shown without doubt in the last 10 years. If they've got to live in Zimbabwe with us, they've got to understand that we have been struggling for one thing and one thing only, the reassertion of ourselves as human beings to, in, in order to, to, to shape the, the, the future of our country without reference to any other person. 
that, that, that is the business of every person wherever he lives. He wants to determine his own future. Self-determination, if you, you want the, the common word used. We're an island in the middle of Africa. The talk has been that uh, we're waiting for the tanks to come in. And now when I say tanks, we mean the Cuban tanks, you see. Now, uh, and we, we look for support to the West because we, we, that's the only place we could look to. We are, we are, we are Europeans. We, are, we want support from somebody. We could not do it on our own. We would fight and fight, but we couldn't do it on our own. And uh, the alternative was the Cuban tanks. There, there, there's a great spirit in the people. We will not go quietly. We will not go quietly. Rhodesians reacting predictably to Ian Smith's announcement, and many of them Irish people who now live in the beleaguered state. There are in fact about 10,000 of Irish descent in Rhodesia, and probably the best-known Irishman in the country is the controversial Bishop of Omtali, Dr. Donald Lamont, a native of Ballycastle, County Antrim. Dr. Lamont, who is now facing a 10-year prison sentence, has been championing the cause of the country's 6 million black Africans for almost 10 years. But his stand has almost totally alienated him from the white community, and from the Irish in particular. His views of his white congregation are both critical and unsympathetic. The white community, you see, they've been, they've ostracised themselves by law, by custom, and now when they want to make contact with the black people, they find it impossible. Do the Irish Catholics in Rhodesia pay any attention to the teaching of Pope Paul, or do they not? I have made this perfectly clear, and the white Catholics of Rhodesia should certainly know about the teaching of Pope Paul, because within the past couple of months, I had printed, and it was circulated in all the dioceses, in all the parishes, particularly in all the predominantly European parishes. There, were, there was circulated the statement of Pope Paul on apartheid, which he delivered to the United Nations Anti-Apartheid uh, Committee. And it's a question of, well, uh, you believe the Holy Father or you don't, and apparently they don't take much notice of it. Bishop Lamont I have met on quite a few occasions. He is a Northern Ireland man like myself. I personally think he is a self-seeking idealist. This may not go down very well in Ireland, talking about a, a Lord of the Church. I personally think that most of his clerics are not behind him. In fact, I know they are not. Why all this controversy? What has he done for the African? He is more vocal than the others, and he uses his mouth more than the others, rather like Cassius Clay. He says what he, all he has done, but I don't see a hell of a lot that he has done. I think he has created possibly more destruction than construction. Unfortunately, he has got a rank and position which makes his word more favoured than mine, but certainly I feel I have done a damn sight more for the African than he has. I may not have done more for their souls, but I think I have done more for their stomachs. I have clothed them, and I have given them jobs. I have taught them respect for themselves and for everything, and for me and for their children, and I have done it out of my own pocket. I have never received a penny from anyone. 
two Irishmen, or rather two Northern Irishmen, one from Antrim and the other from Fermanagh, 6,000 miles away from home and almost as many miles apart ideologically. As you can see, even in these last days, with Rhodesia's slow death taking place before their eyes, the moderates and the hardliners are still as far apart as ever. Nothing seems to have changed. We have no doubt whatsoever that uh, the solution of um, the Zimbabwe question lies in the military field. There, there, there's a great spirit in the people. We will not go quietly. We will not go quietly. This is uh, the barrier that stops us from knowing each other. We are not power-hungry, mind you, but we are freedom-hungry. One now can clearly identify the enemy. Now that we have agreed to indulge in a political formula which allows black and white to have a say in the power structure, to be a part of the decision-making process, the reasons for terrorism, if they were there in the first place, divorced from communist pressures, uh, have been eliminated. Therefore, anyone who fights on now is not fighting for Rhodesia, is not fighting for freedom of the black man, even if they believe that this was their cause before. They are being manipulated as puppets of direct communist pressure, intervention and direction. And if they fight on from now, they are not fighting for Rhodesia, they're fighting for Mozambique, they're fighting for Michelle, they're not fighting for Rhodesia at all. This is uh, the barrier that stops us from knowing each other. There's a great spirit in the people. We will not go quietly. We will not go quietly. It's something the world at large may not yet have grasped. But there's a war going on in Rhodesia, and it's not just a war of words. It's a bloody war of bombs and bullets, in which at least 2,000 people have lost their lives so far. The talking is beginning, but the fighting is still frighteningly savage in intensity. And yet, in the midst of all of this death and destruction, life goes on somehow. On our last night in Africa, seven guerrillas were shot dead in the Vumba Mountains above Omtali. We were drinking in a small tavern only five miles away at the time. And on the following morning in the little mission church in the valley below, people were praying for peace as the mangled bodies of the freedom fighters were carted away in a convoy of army trucks. The little church was thronged to capacity and the strains of the evocative Shona Mass spilled out through its open doors, filling the green-brown valley on either side and re-echoing its great message of hope deep in the Vumba hills all around. <laughs> 